Hello, hello, hello. My name is Robert. I am the recovery guy, and you have entered into the fix. Robert, I'm alcoholic, and uh, it's good to be here. And early on in recovery, from uh, a man who's my sponsor today, uh, used to identify as slow will, and he was a happy, grateful, recovered alcoholic. And this was before I was in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, but I hadn't admitted to my innermost self that I was alcoholic, which is the first step of recovery. So I had a real resentment against this arrogance. You know, who is this person who would stand up and, and give something beyond just saying, my name is Slow Will and I'm alcoholic. He had to be a happy, grateful, recovered alcoholic. And it pissed me off so much that I had to go ask him, who did he think he was? He just said, well, I'm a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and if you've got a few minutes, I'll open up the big book and I'll show you exactly where I get this from. And that's a great thing about so many of the people that brought me up and to this day bring me up in this program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, every significant person in my recovered life, and today I've been sober 12,985 days, which is a little bit more than 35 years, every significant person in my life today is either dead in sobriety or living in sobriety. Every, every single one. You know, Texas Mike and Abe and Doc Irv and, and Tom Bennett and, and uh, my, my sponsor Jack Fisher all died in, in recovery and many more. But there's Eddie, there's Buddy, there's Slow Will, there's Steve, there's Scott. These are all men who are 38, 39, 40, 40, 40 years of personal recovery. And do you know what they're doing? They're doing the same thing today that they taught me when I first came into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous in February of 19, February 9th of 1986. That wouldn't be my final sobriety date. My final sobriety date is April 25th of 1986. I thought I could find an easier, softer way, but I could not, right? And so with all the earnestness at our command, we beg of you to be fearless and thorough from the very start. And, and you know, if, if you're new or relatively new to the program, we really do beg you. We don't say that lightly. Because we are convinced to a man that the disease of alcoholism is a progressive illness and over any considerable period things get worse. They never, never, never get better. And if you relapse like I have or you've been around and you've seen people leave and never come back, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know, I always appreciate, thank you, Jesse, for reading more about alcoholism because if there was no further evidence, then I would need to know that Robert Pardon is truly, as Dr. Paul would say, an alcoholic of sorts, right? I truly am. And it's only when I'm willing to admit to my innermost self that I'm alcoholic that I'm ready to take certain steps, right? I'm a, I'm a walking cliche. I want you to know that, though. I don't have 
war stories that I share with you because they're inconsequential. You know, what you need to know about me as a, as a person of recovery, as an alcoholic, is that alcohol kept me alive long enough to where I could find the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. Because if it wasn't for alcohol, I don't think I could have survived. You know what I mean? I, I don't think I would have made it. I think I would have found a way to kill myself quicker than what alcohol was doing for me. Because what alcohol did for me, it taught me to go through life sideways. It taught me that even though I wasn't nothing because I came from nothing, and I was always going to be a nothing, when I drank and used in the right proportion, I became an almost. And when you come from nothing, and you are nothing, and you're always going to be a nothing, when you hit that magic button that says, I'm an almost, that's, for me, that was top of the world. I was better looking. I was probably even taller. I'm sure I was much more charming. But I was also dying. Not only was I dying physically, but every significant relationship in my life, from employer to clergy to friends to family to spouses with an S, children, I left in my wake of my addiction. Matter of fact, I was in such denial over my alcoholism that my first 12-step meeting was Gamblers Anonymous in Las Vegas at a Catholic church over in East Las Vegas, and that was in December of 1985. And I was willing to admit maybe I had a problem with gambling because if I was going to the casinos and if I could curb my gambling, which, you know, you get those so-called free drinks, and so I figured if I could just curb my gambling, maybe I could just curb my alcohol and I would just sort of kill two birds with one stone. And so that worked for a minute. But what I found myself is staying away from gambling, which means I became more of an isolated drinker. And it actually exposed my drinking for much more than it was because I didn't have the gambling to be as a distraction. Therefore, I needed to drink more to have that feeling of being that almost, right? That gambling and throwing up and pornography and all the other things that were added onto my alcoholism uh, would bring to me. And so it wasn't long before I was back gambling, which meant I was drinking even more now because I had established even a, a greater drinking pattern. Again, over any considerable period, things get worse. They never get better. The body remembers where it ought to be in terms of drinking. And so where I was before would mean, and that's just what the a definition of tolerance is, I need more today to achieve the same feeling I had yesterday, right? And that's essentially what tolerance is. And so finally, when I came into treatment, I did something I had never done before. I had admitted that alcohol was the problem. I remember waking up on February 9th of 1986 in my parents' condo in Las Vegas. And my parents were already gone. I had lost my job at the Las Vegas Hilton the previous night. Lost my $1,000 check at Davies Locker on free drinks, right, and gambling. And I stood in front of the mirror, 
and I would hear voices, and, and many of you can relate to that because there's a there's a psychosis that can occur for long-term addiction, and and I would hear these voices, some imagined, some real, but they were all family members and people I had disappointed along the way, and they would be saying things like, Bobby, 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 what are you doing? And I woke up on this particular morning and there was nobody there. There was no voices. There wasn't anything. There was just a void. And for the first time in my life, I did not see myself as an almost. I saw myself as dead. And I knew that if something didn't change, I was going to die. And you've heard it before, and I'll say it again. We're not bad people trying to get better. We're sick people trying to get well. And alcohol was killing me. And I didn't know how to stop. If I could have just stopped, I'd have stopped a long time ago. I'd have stopped at wife number one. I'd have stopped before I walked out of my children. I would have stopped after I disappointed my parents. I would have stopped after I had to get so drunk before I could go to a family member's house so they wouldn't see how much I drank once I got there. But I, but I couldn't. But this particular morning, and the next thing I did would begin to turn the table on my alcoholism. See, I grew up in Southern California in downtown Los Angeles, and I knew what Skid Row was. I knew what alcoholics were. I knew what homeless people looked like. And an alcoholic was a person who didn't have a home, pushed a shopping cart, and drank questionable wine. Right? And I didn't fit those qualities. I was a much higher shelf drunk. Right? But I was still a drunk. And so, when I looked in the yellow pages, back in those days we had, actually had physical books. They were called yellow pages. And, and, and I looked there, and I looked under alcoholism. And, and it wasn't and it wasn't a thought. It wasn't where should I look? I knew. I was ready to admit something I had known for a long time. But denial is our enemy. In the midst of all the evidence that we would have I mean, I was talking to Chaz before and we were just briefly discussing step one. All the evidence we would ever need is contained and we admitted we were callous over alcohol in our life and become unmanageable. And that's where I was in that moment. And I looked in the yellow pages under alcoholism and I began dialing treatment centers. And you had to have money, you had to have insurance back even back in the you know the mid eighties. And finally I came across the Nevada Treatment Center and I spoke with the person who answered the phone, the intake counselor, and, and I said I have a problem with alcohol and I, and I need help. And they said, well, can, can you get $50? I said, well, I'm a good drug dealer too. Of course I get $50. You know, I didn't tell them that, right? They would, of course, figure that one out. And yeah, I can get $50. And they said, can you be here in an hour? I said, well, yeah. So I, and I asked them, I said, so if I have $50 and I show up in an hour, you'll talk to me? And yeah, we will. So I called my dad and my dad had been sober almost uh, seven years at this time. And, and I called my dad and said, Dad, I need your help, don't hang up. But if I can get $50 and you can give me a ride, because I didn't know where my car was, if you can give me a ride over Nevada Treatment Center, 
these people will talk to me. And I don't think I ever saw my dad move that quickly. He was there in, in minutes. And he dropped me off there, and that was the beginning of my recovery journey. And it was challenging because I didn't, I didn't want you to know who I was. You know, we have, a, we have a past that, for most people, they'll never forgive us if they knew the things that we know about each other. You know? So I was so afraid that if you found out who I was and really understood what a despicable person I was and the places that I went and the things that I did and who I did them to, that in my mind, I would be the first person in the history of Alcoholics Anonymous that you would say, you know what? You're a little bit too sick for us. We'll get you into uh, psychiatric care, psychological counseling, and then when they give you the seal of approval, this was in my mind, right? Because we are only as sick as our secrets. And then I really began listening to you and hearing you share some of your stories. And I understood that you were more alike than I wanted to admit. Some of you, by the way, I will add to some of you are pretty sick, right? I think um, I can relate to everyone. And what I haven't done, I've come to understand that those are yets that never have to occur, right? So in my recovery today, I just keep the yets away and live another day. And so I began to work the steps. And then my enemy, which was physical sobriety, confronted me. You know, the most dangerous thing, and I think it's um, Father Martin in, in his Chalk Talk, he talks about the only thing more dangerous than a lie is a half-truth, right? Because there's just enough of the truth in it to make you believe it, and you do it, and you find out it was a lie all along. And there's nothing more dangerous for a person in recovery than getting a little physical sobriety. Thinking that recovery is just the absence of alcohol. I must be sober. I must have sobriety. I haven't drank in 30 days, 60 days. See, I've got this chip that lets me know how powerful I am. And I start to take back some of the power I told you I had given away, but really didn't, right? Because that's who I was, you know? Through every means of self-deception, you know? In the back of my mind, I want to go back and drink like a normal person, right? Therefore, non-alcoholic. And by the way, they told me it was, it was humorous. Certain things they told me that are still funny to this day. They told me that if I wasn't sure I was an alcoholic, just a sticker around because I would do till one showed up, which is still very funny to me. And, and I would come back, and I would come back, and, and once I made that decision, see, because I was working on step one, but I saw these other steps. And you kept talking about honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness. And I thought, well, I'm going to admit that I have a problem with alcohol, yeah, my life is probably unmanageable most of the time, right? I even soft sell that in the spite of my life being a train wreck. I mean, I remember where I lived. To this day, 
I can tell you I lived at 1425 North Mallard in Las Vegas where I was married to my second wife, but I can't tell you how long we were married. So that's how unmanageable my life was. So I, I, I would look at the rest of these steps and I think, well, I can do that. And maybe I'll do that. You ever go to like Sizzler or Chuckarama, right? Back in, when I was growing up, we called them smorgasbords, but they're essentially buffets, right? And what do you do in a buffet? You go to the buffet, you take a look at it and say, I want some of this, I want some of that, though I don't want any of those peas, but let me have a little bit of extra gravy on top of that ham, right? We pick and choose what we want based on the selfishness of our own personal appetite. And that's how it was with the steps. I came in and said, well, okay, so I have a power, you know, I'm powerless over alcohol. I get drunk when I'm not supposed to, and I drink too much when I say I'm not going to. I don't know if I was entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character, but I was probably close enough, right? Especially as a God of my understanding, and I can sort of manipulate him or her, right, depending upon what your flow is. And so I began to look at, and I began to negotiate the steps. Pretty brilliant, right? And that worked. I want you to know that worked right up until I got drunk. Because that day will come when we tell you, and when they told me that half measures availed us nothing, we stood at the turning point, we asked his care and protection with complete abandon, here are the steps we took, which are suggested as a program of recovery. Do you know why they call them suggestions? Because you can't tell an alcoholic nothing. Everybody wants to learn, but nobody wants to be taught. I wanted to learn everything. But I wanted to learn it my way. I wanted to learn it without you hurting my feelings. I wanted you. I wanted to learn it without you figuring me out. Because when you figured me out, then I agreed to it. Then I was responsible to go and take care of it. And that's not what I was about. I wanted to go through my recovery as I went through life, and that was sideways. I just had to figure out how to go through sideways without alcohol. So the conniving, the manipulation, all of the personal and spiritual maneuvering began to take place. And I found myself drunk. I got drunk on, on April 19th of 1986. And for some miraculous reason, I made my way back to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous on April 25th of 1986. And that was my last drink. And I went into the meeting, and you talk about divine intervention. The most spiritual man I knew, his name was Max, and he was my sponsor. I figured if I could get over on him, I'd get over on anybody, because that's what we're about, right? So I walked into the meeting room, and as if we had a divine appointment, Max was there. Two hours after the meeting was over, he just happened to be there. And I went back in, and I realized that I didn't even have to tell him where I had been for the last five days. He just knew. And he said, do you think this is something that you want? And I said, well, Max, I, you know me, man. I, I need this thing. He said, no, you don't understand the question. There's a lot of people who need this. But whether or not you're going to do it is whether or not you want it. 
If you want to live more than you want to die, then you will do this. I said, Max, I want this more than I can even understand because I saw you. I saw you happy. I saw you feeling the things I always wanted to feel but afraid I would never feel them. And you were real. I watched you come and go and I took your inventory. And for some of you, I even used it against you. Which is against the rule. By the way, for if you're a newcomer, take everyone's inventory. Take, no, I'm serious. Take it, take it, take it, take it. Take my inventory. Because if I tell you to stick with the winners and then I tell you I, you can't take my inventory, how are you going to know if I'm a winner? Just don't use it against me. Take my inventory and go on. Either learn that you want to be like me. If newcomers could see no joy in our existence, they wouldn't want it. If I wasn't happy, joyous, and free, if I was a drumline, you wouldn't want what I have. And that's okay. But you might want what someone else has, and you might not want what someone else has. Because if there's anything I know about recovery, is even though there's a certain quality about quantity, just because you have time doesn't mean you have quality. It just means you have time. Right? So again, if you're new relatively new, you have my permission to take everyone's inventory. Just don't, and if anyone has a problem with that, my cell phone number is 801-995-2753. Ask them to call me, and I'll take their inventory and explain to them why it's okay. Right? So that's my commercial on that. But I love the program of Alcoholics Anonymous because you allowed me to feel comfortable for me for the first time in my life. And that day, on April 25th of 1986, Max said, we need to get on our knees because we need to do the third step prayer. And I began to understand for the very first time that sobriety had nothing to do but everything to do with not drinking. Because before you can have sobriety, you need to be sober, but just because you're sober doesn't mean you have sobriety. I guarantee you. Some people say that there's a spiritual element to this program. Malarkey. This is a spiritual program. A, we were alcoholic and could not manage our own lives. B, that probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. And C, that God couldn't have ever sought. We stood at the turning point. We asked his care and protection. Right? Everything we talk about. We even have a chapter to, for individuals who don't understand the concept or have a struggle with with a higher power, and that's called the agnostics. We even deal with that. Because if we look at these steps, and I'm a big 12-step guy for which I make no apologies for, and if you're not doing the steps and you're having a trouble with your recovery, figure it out. Here are the steps we took which are suggested as a program of recovery. Right? Oh, and you know what? Hey, as a little Bible trail, you know what the only alternative suggestion is? And so our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. Do you know what the alternative suggestion is? Go try some controlled drinking, and when you get a belly full of your condition, come on back. And maybe at this time you'll be sweetly reasonable. Get off your high horse and do the 12 steps. You'll get a sponsor. You'll go to meetings. You'll pray, right? And if you think that's a hard line, I would rather... I will not baby you because I don't want to bury you. So I don't baby you. I got no time for sympathy. I don't have the empathy in the world because I know where we come from. But sympathy isn't going to do make your feel good feel good. 
but recovery will. And so I look at these steps, and when we look at these steps, the only steps that are directly related to my relationship with God are steps one, steps eight, and step nine. Step two, three, four, five, six, seven, steps 10, 11, and 12, all related to my relationship with God. So if I tell you that nine out of the 12 things are directly related to God, what makes you think that this program isn't about God? Because a program of Alcoholics Anonymous isn't designed to teach me how not to drink or use. It's designed to teach me how to have a relationship with a power greater than myself, and as a result of that relationship, I won't want to drink or use. And not only that, I get a spiritual mandate at the end, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we try to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. It is spiritual. It's not religion. Speaking of religion, this is religion. You'll like this. I do. And my ego tells me you will too. So there was a Baptist, and there was a Mormon, and there was a Christian scientist, and they all end up in an AA meeting. And the Baptist said, if I just listened to my pastor, I wouldn't be here. And the Mormon said, if I just listened to my bishop, I wouldn't be here. And the Christian scientist sat over in the corner and said, I'm not here, I'm not here, I'm not here. <laughs> so... So as we work through the steps and we realize our relationship with God, because again, going back to step one, step one is the foundation. My dear friend Pete the Greek in Las Vegas said, Bob, the only step you ever need to do to perfection is step one. Because every other step, you're going to make a mistake, and that's okay. Any mistake you make in step two through nine, you can pick up in ten. Because ten, by the way, encompasses steps one through nine. I'm a believer that we don't have to go back and redo the steps. Personal philosophy is what I've been taught, because if you look at the steps, step 10 has steps 1 through 9 built into it. That's why we do a daily, an annual, and a semi-annual house cleaning, because I can take an inventory of all, everything with steps 1 through 9. Step 11 allows me to have that conscious contact with God, gives me my mandate for the day so that I can go out and do His will and gain His power, not mine. And step 12, I go carry this message to alcoholics, right? So, so as I'm working through these steps, I find that there, this is the easier, softer way. Since we thought there were, we thought we could find an easier, softer way, but we cannot. But there actually is an easier, softer way, and I found that to be true. I found that to be true in my life, in the life of every person that I've come across. As soon as I can break down and understand that I am powerless over alcohol and my life is truly unmanageable, right? Why else would I do step two? If I don't believe that I have become insane or a form of insanity by drinking over and over again and expecting that things are going to be different this time, or that I can act however I want to act, and my spouse, my employer, my family members can treat me a little differently. I'm going to have power over my life, even though I treat it with reckless abandon. What makes me think? I'm not going to do any of the other steps. Matter of fact, if I see a person that I'm working with, either professionally or on a sponsorship basis, struggling with any of the steps, I always go back to step one. Because, think about it. If you're out in the ocean, and I've almost drowned, 
so I know what this feels like. I know what it feels like to just pray that somebody would throw me a life vest so I don't have to go down and drown. But if you're in the ocean and you're swimming and I come across you and I throw you a life preserver because I think you're drowning, you're going to grab that based on whether or not you think you're drowning. And if you don't think you're drowning, why would you grab the life vest? You're going to look at me and say, what the hell are you doing that for? I'm not drowning. Go throw it to somebody who needs it because I'm okay right where I'm at. And, and, and I was even talking to, again, Chaz before, in, in the 12 and 12, we learn that we have to admit our powerlessness over alcohol, Bill says, as only the dying can. That's pretty heavy. If you don't think, if I don't think that alcohol and my way of living is going to kill me, why would I want to learn how to live in steps two through nine? I wouldn't want to. It wouldn't make any sense. And if I do, I'm only going to half measure it. But I only have to look at my life for a minute to see how powerless I am and how my life had become unmanageable. And I'm not just talking about powerless over alcohol. Alcohol was the core for me. And that was one of the most wonderful things. I, I came in so battered and so bruised and, and, and I couldn't drink enough to really escape that feeling of being a nothing. And so drugs were a great compliment, I say that loosely, to my drinking. And then that wasn't enough. I needed more of an escape. So I added pornography. I was throwing up three or four times. Matter of fact, I didn't stop throwing up until I was 18 months clean and sober. I lost every paycheck I'd ever gained as in, in Las Vegas. I would go to OA, NAGA, OA, SA, and AA. I qualified for the single one. And I'm an ACA, so I can go to Alamo. <laughs> I'm like the poster child for screw-up. But it's the only, the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And it doesn't teach me how not to drink. It tells me I have a drinking problem. And if I want to learn how not to be confronted with that problem anymore, then I have to make certain changes in my life. And I have to make those changes in the order that they're laid out. Chaz is, is a fireman, right? Chaz climbs ladders for a living. Chaz knows to get to the top rung, he has to start at the bottom. It would be foolish to say, hey, Chaz, I want you to climb this ladder and I want you to start at rung five. He'd look and say, Robert, that's not safe. That's not advised. Oshu wouldn't even recommend that, let alone his training commander, right? We take the step. We find out we're secure there. And when we have secure footing, we say, you know, I feel good here. I'm ready to take the next step. And if we're new, relatively new to the program, we usually have somebody holding our ladder. Do you know what we call them? We call them our sponsor. Our sponsors are holding the ladder, making sure we're going to be okay, making sure we're going to be safe. Hey, I've climbed this ladder before, I know what it's like. Slow down, take your time, be careful, because if you fall, I can't help you. You're going to have to start at one one again. But let's climb this thing together. And that's what the program of Alcoholics Anonymous does. You know, I love the preamble of Alcoholics Anonymous. Don't you? 
Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength, and hope with each other that we might solve our common problem and to help others to recover from alcoholism. And it goes on to say some more things about no dues or fees for membership, who are self-supporting their own contributions, and so on. If, if the only thing I would have ever heard was that Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship, I would have stayed. You had me. Like, what was that movie in, uh, that movie with, what's his name and what's her name? Anyway, you had me at Hello, right? Jeremy Breyer, there was a thing. And, and you had me at Fellowship. Because I know that my alcoholism was a direct result of my fellowship problem. Remember the loneliness we would feel? Even before we started drinking. You know, when I, when I looked at my life, when I would go back and I would do the steps and kind of peel things back as much as I reasonably could and try to remember what it was like, where this all started, right? I remember when I, when I, had, uh, I had melanoma cancer and praise God, I recovered from that. But I remember my dermatologist saying, this doesn't look good. We need to get in and get this out. He made sure he actually went below where he needed to go to make sure he could get everything and that long-term recovery was, was possible. And the same thing when we take a look back and we begin to do that four-step and, and we take that personal moral inventory of ourselves and we go back and we see where, where did this confusion start? And I remember, and maybe you can relate to this, I remember being five years old and crying. Five years old, and I'm crying in bed and just wondering why it hurt so much being me. I didn't understand, I was five. I was talking, right? Language. A language is important for memory and understanding. And I just couldn't comprehend it. And it didn't help that my dad was alcoholic. My mom was totally codependent. I was the middle child of seven kids, and we were poor. But I remember laying there at night, and pain, if not dealt with, has a way of just piling up. You know what I'm saying? And it just gets deeper and deeper and deeper, and you begin to sort of set it aside, because you don't know how to deal with it. But it gets deeper and deeper and deeper. Finally, when I was 14, I remember the first time I drank. Do you remember the first time I drank? I remember it was the summer of my 14th year, and I was sitting under the tree with Dean and Don Cato. And all of our parents had passed out by this time, so I could go get some cores and some Kenhai, and they got some wine, and, and, and there was Chris Ayudo next door, and we all sat under the tree with some liquor. And I remember getting drunk for the first time. And, and I did that because I could get away with something, right? I, as Father Martin would say, I wanted to do what the big people did. I wanted to get drunk. I wanted to have my independence. I was 14 years old, right? So I did it because I could get away with it. You know why I drank every subsequent time? Because alcohol made a nothing feel like an almost. And I began to drink and drink. You know, when you're 14 and 15 years old, you have to pick your spots, right? I can't do it like when I was 18 and drink all the time. But I began to drink because every time I started to feel 
like I was convinced I wasn't nothing, I would go back and drink a little bit, just take the edge off and take the edge off. And for a while, it was a great friend. It was a stress reducer. It kept me from committing suicide by the time I was 16 years old. And I was active. I mean, I, I was very athletic growing up. I'm a trained vocalist, so I was in glee club, I was in choir. It wasn't like I was sitting in my room waiting to die. I was trying to interact with life. I was just doing it sideways. And I was afraid I was going to be found out every single step of the way. So as I would 16 and 17 years old and start to expand my horizons in high school, I started going by behind the handball courts and I started doing a lot of speed and smoking dope in the morning and drinking spinata and I started to find myself getting high throughout the day. Things were starting to take off. I was starting to develop a physical allergy, a physical addiction that began to tell me this is no longer about the emotional balance that alcohol brings. I needed to start drinking on a cellular level. By the time I was 18 years old, January 3rd of 1972, I turned 18 years old. I walked into the register's office at Corvallis High School in Corvallis, Oregon, announced to them that I was dropping out of high school. They said, you can't do that. I said, I can do whatever I want. I'm 18 years old. I'll show you. I'll kill me. Right? I was doing all the things I would hear about later on in recovery. I was starting to do all the geographics. Then all I needed was to go in the Air Force. That's going to fix me. I got out in two months, inability to adjust to military life with an open end prescription of 20 milligram gallium. I know what I'll do. I'll get married. I drank myself into an alcoholic coma the week before I got married. And she still married me. That's very charming. Very interesting. I still want And I'm sorry. But that's who I was. And this went on and on and on and on. And the relationships would go. And the trust would leave. I can't tell you how many jobs I've had. I have no idea. It has to be a hundred. You know, you, you work long enough until they figure you out. I remember one boss told me, he said, you know what, there's going to come a day right now, you're an asset, but your liabilities are getting very close. Soon, when your liabilities overtake your assets, I am going to fire you. That's what he told me. That was back in 1982. This was the first person who had a glimpse into my problem. He took me to the Nevada, uh, Nevada Psychiatric Center over on Charleston Boulevard in Las Vegas. And I forget who the psychiatrist was, but he diagnosed me with obsessive compulsive disorder and alcoholism. And his prognosis was that I would never get better. I agree except for the alcoholism part. I knew I was never going to get better. Because I didn't know how to get better. I didn't know how to feel the way I wanted to feel without that which was killing me. I couldn't drink, but I couldn't stop. I didn't know how. And then again, that magical moment on February 9th, of 1986, I walked into the Nevada Treatment Center and my life began to change. 
and they started taking me to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I began to see a people who, the more I told them, would tell me that we will love you until you can learn how to love yourself. And you did. You know what the cool thing is? When I learned how to love myself, you still loved me. And that's the most amazing thing about this. So when we talk about a fellowship, and again, if you're really relatively new to the program and you don't feel these things yet, stick around. Because there's a fellowship. And I'll read this to you before I, before I close tonight. But there's a way to feel and to come through life. You know, I love the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I've had this one since 1986. It's the third edition. My sponsor, Janet, gave it to me. I actually have a second edition from my sponsor. And the doctor's opinion, because the big book saved my life. I didn't know I loved to read until I picked up a big book. And I, and I had this insatiable appetite because you know why? It not only told me about who I was, it told me about who I could become. And I loved the part about who I could become. But in the doctor's opinion, actually, I'm going to forward to the first edition. And this is our first Lidmar Pope. And if you haven't read this, read it. And if you've read it, go back and reread it. But we of Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. To show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose for this book. Why wouldn't I want to read the book? You told me that I was suffering from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. I raised my hand on that one. And then you told me you even italicized it. You know what it means when they italicize something? They want this knucklehead to pay attention because what they're about to tell me is very important. So they italicize it like you would bold it, like you would underline it. Hey, knucklehead, pay attention. This is important stuff. So they make it stick out. And that's grammatically true. To show other alcoholics precisely, not a wonder that way, because rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Precisely and thoroughly are essentially the same word. Precisely. How we have recovered is the main, not a purpose, not part of a purpose, but the main purpose of this book. Then, if that wasn't enough, it goes on into the doctor's opinion. I think it's on Roman numeral 28, if I'm not mistaken. Excuse me, 20, 26. And it talks about men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. <laughs> you figure that one out, right? Of course we do. The effect we produce, we get drunk. Right? And it tells me everything I thought was wrong was all, all of a sudden okay. Why would I want to drink? But then it talks about we see others drinking and they're okay. The word is impunity. Nothing bad happens. But we're not like that. We drink over and over again and things get worse. And I love this next part. And if you want a dose of hope tonight, if that's why you're here, here's some hope. On the other hand, and as strange as it may seem to those who do not understand once a psychic change has occurred, the very same person who seemed doomed, who had so many problems he despaired of ever solving them. Anyone like that in this room? Anyone ever had so many problems? Holy, when we realize the problems we have, we almost want to retreat. 
but we're already far enough down the road that we know we can't because if we go back, we'll drink, and if we drink, we'll die. And we already found out we want to know how to live. So we had so many problems, we, 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 we didn't think we were going to solve them. We had so many problems, he despaired of solving them. He said, now suddenly, are you ready for this? Suddenly, like right now, in an instant, now over time, suddenly finds himself easily able, yes, are you ready? Everyone hates the control word. I love control. Don't you love control? Who doesn't love a little control? Lack of power, that was our dilemma, right? Right? That's what it says in the big book. I want control. I need control. Now finds himself easily able to control his desire for alcohol. The only requirement necessary, okay, I hate this part. I have to follow some rules. Right? There's always a hit. Thank you. Do you know what my next question was? I went, I read this, I, I, I was like this child reading something for the very first time because I was. I went into my sponsor's office, I sat down and said, okay, Jack, tell me what the rules are. I have to know the rules because I have so many problems, I don't know what I'm going to do. Because the longer we're sober, especially early in the beginning, before we start applying the steps and, and the element of time takes root and begins fixing things over time, because time will do that. Time is our friend. I had people who would talk to me just because I stayed sober. I didn't do, I, I didn't, I didn't do anything. All I did was not show up drunk over a period of time, because time is my friend. I said, Jack, what do I do? I need to know what these rules are. And what he said to me? He said, there's three rules. Clean house, trust God, and work with others. Steps one through nine, clean house. Steps 10, 11, trust God. Step 12, work with us. Everything comes back to the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. If you're not doing the 12 steps and you're having a mediocre life, I'm here to tell you it's because you're not doing the 12 steps. There's not a meaning in this world that's going to change you without you doing the steps because we don't get this through osmosis. I don't inherit sobriety like I would a fortune, which I'm still waiting for, by the way. When my sponsor Jack died, he was 44 years sober and he died of cancer. And I sat in his home to, in, in his hospital room in Las Vegas and I drove there to see him because I knew it would be the last time I saw Jack. And I and I sat in his hospital bed and he was a robust man. He came out of prison 11 years dry and sober. And he began the sober journey, which changed lives. He was intergroup chairman and president, National Archive chairman, 44 years sober. I can't tell you how many lives he touched in Las Vegas. But he touched them all through the program. And I told Jack, I said, Jack, what do I tell him? I knew this was the last time I was going to see him. I said, Jack, what do I tell him? I have to carry your mantle. You know, I'm one of the, at this particular time, me and this person named Richard H. We were the longest sponsees that he had had. You know, we were both plus 30 years at the time. And, uh, and I said, Jack, what, what do I say? And I had to get really close to Jack. And he just whispered, he said, Bob, tell him it works. And that was Jack. 
like a game show host. You know, you tell me what time it is, and I just might tell you how to build a watch. But Jack's was keep it simple and take it easy. So when Jack said to me, Bob, tell him it works, he was saying, take him through the steps now. Introduce him to the forward to the first edition. Introduce him to the doctor's opinion. Introduce him to Bill's story. Introduce him to more about alcoholism. There is a solution to that. How it works. You know, it's not by accident that chapter six is called interaction. After they tell me what to do, how to do it, they tell me to go do it. That's not by accident. So all these things come into play. And I, I take my recovery. I try to follow rule 62, which I don't take myself too damn seriously, right? I'm still learning that one. But I take my recovery very seriously. If I were a cancer patient, I have, I have AFib, right? So I take Eliquis and, and other heart medication. I take them religiously. You better believe I do. You know why? Because I don't want to fall down in my refrigerator like I had to when my wife had to come and get me and take me to the emergency room at 3 in the morning. I don't want that. So I'm pretty religious. I, I watch what I eat. I exercise. I take my medication. And I go to my regular checkups. I take care of myself because I don't want to die unnecessarily. I take that very seriously. But you know what? Alcoholism will kill me as well. Just because I've been clean and sober 35 plus years doesn't mean I can't relapse. This means I've been sober 35 years. You know, I am a happy, grateful, recovered alcoholic. And you know how I stay recovered? I stay in recovery. I figured that one out myself. <laughs> you know what I did this morning? I called my sponsor. 41 years sober. Slow will. Happy, grateful, recovered alcoholic. Will's known me from day one, and my sponsor, Jack, died. As I was driving from Las Vegas back to Salt Lake City, I was on the phone to Will and said, Will, Jack's dying. And Will's known me from day one. Will. Will actually allowed me to sleep on his couch. And uh, as I was homeless after my relapse, and he came out about three weeks after I was sleeping on his couch, he said, you know, Mom, that's a convertible sofa. But Will would carry the message, and every now and then he would carry the alcohol, and he did that for me. But he became my sponsor, and he's got, he'll have 42 years sobriety on January 1st of uh, 2022. And I read my big book, and I'm at a meeting. I messaged three people that I work with professionally and, and as sponsees. So I clean house, I trusted God, and I work with others. You know, at day 12,985, I'm doing everything that they taught me to do. Before I came in tonight, I, I, I messaged my friend Eddie P, Fast Eddie Plumber, in Las Vegas, 38 years sobriety. I said, Eddie, I'm speaking on YouTube right now. That's what we do. Every person of notable sobriety, sobriety that I would want, that I want, that I look and say, I want to be like you when I grow up. 
I don't care if you're 15 years, 20 years, you could be less than me, I don't care. If you've got some magic, if you're doing something that I need to put a twist on what I'm doing, I want to know what that is, right? I'll take your inventory and figure it out and apply it to me and make it work so I can be better equipped to help somebody else. But the program works. And again, it doesn't work through osmosis and cliches are cliches. You know the cliche? They're cliches because they work. If they didn't work, they'd have stopped being cliches a long time ago. And just so you know, here's a cliche that I need to readdress with you. Have you heard that the newcomer is the most important person in the room? Have you heard that? A few times. I'm here to tell you that's not true. Here's why. If you view the newcomer as the most important person in the room, then you view AA as a giant furnace that needs new coals just to keep it going. The fact is, we who are already here, if we don't do everything for ourselves in our personal recovery, there's not going to be anyone here when the newcomer arrives. And that's the truth. So every day, every day I strive to become the best possible version of me. That's what it says in the big book. That's what it says. What we really have is a daily recruit contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. And then what I need to do, I need to find out what God's will is for me, his vision is for me, and then go do it. That's what it says in the big book. If you've got a problem with anything I said tonight, come and chat with me. We'll have a big book study when this thing is done. Because this saved my life. And it has saved the life of countless other people. It's transformed chance and tests into the people they are today. It's transformed everyone I know into a person that can be respected. Do you know who's in town? My two oldest daughters that I walked out on in the middle of my addiction, they're in town to see Blue October. I picked one of my daughters up from the airport today, and my other daughter and her husband came in town. We met over at my son's house. My son and my youngest, my youngest son and my other daughter, they've never seen me drunk. I was sober much longer before they were born to my third wife. By the way, I've been, I've been married over 33 years. Get an idea that recovery and, and a stable marriage doesn't go together. They do. But this is my life today. When you talk about restoration, I was talking to Chaz again. By the way, I really miss you. Uh, Chaz is a good friend. And, and, and I was talking to him about a restoration of relationship between my brother George and me. Somewhere along the line, we sort of lost our way. And my mom died a year and a half ago, and I was praying and saying, God, you know, I, I want you to restore the relationship with my brother and me. So if there's any way you could open that door that I'll walk through, I'll, I'll admit what I, I'll say what I don't need to say, that you're led, I, it doesn't really matter. I'll humble myself to whatever degree, but my brother needs to be my friend. George is the old, check this out. You know you're getting old. When your older brother is the oldest person who's known you your whole life. When my brother dies, no one will be living who has known me my whole life. Tell me I don't need to get that relationship right. What a waste that would be. 
no one living who's known you your whole life. And you could have been that person's friend. And your pride said, don't do it. That's not who I want to be. That's not what you've taught me in recovery. You told me to clean house. You told me to trust God. You told me to work with others. And I'm still understanding what that means. And every day, and I do my ten step at night, and I get ready for the next day, I want I, I, I approach life with a level of anticipation and exhilaration and expectation because I know that no matter what happens, it's going to be a good day. Because that's what I've decided. Because we are sure God wants us to be happy, joyous, and free. That's a big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, folks. I love it. So that was funny because I said that pretty eloquently, didn't I? But that's the truth. I'm going to read one page to you. I know I've gone a little long, and for which I make no apology, because it's all recovery. Here's my favorite page of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I have a lot. But this sort of encapsulates everything that is near and dear to me, because it includes all of us. See, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon AA unity. It's our first tradition. By the way, the 12 steps of recovery teach me how not to kill me. The 12 traditions teaches us how not to kill each other. Side trend there. So here is my favorite page of the big book, and I'll close with this. We at Alcoholics Anonymous know thousands of men and women who were once just as hopeless as Bill, nearly all have recovered. They have solved the drink problem. This is written, again, not me, this is Bill. But you have a problem with this, your problem is with the Alcoholics Anonymous, not me. We are average Americans. All sections of this country and many of its occupations are represented as well as many political, economic, social, and religious backgrounds. We are people who normally would not mix, but there exists amongst us a fellowship, a friendliness, and an understanding which is indescribably wonderful. We are like the passengers of a great liner the moment after rescue from shipwreck when camaraderie, joyousness, and democracy pervade the vessel from steerage to the captain's table. But unlike the feeling of the ship's passengers, however, our joy in escape from disaster does not subside as we, as we go our own individual ways. The feeling of having shared is a common peril in the powerful cement which now binds us, but that in itself would have not held us together as we are now joined. The tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. We have a way out on which we can agree and join in brotherly and harmonious action and upon which we can join a brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. My name is Robert, and I'm an alcoholic.